Father, we thank you for your grace. It is by grace that we're saved through faith. And this is not of our own doing. It's your gift so that we can't boast. Father, your word is revelation gifted to us that we might know you, that we might know the way to you, that we might see ourselves in our true condition as needy and helpless and spiritually dead and needing your spirit's life breathed into us. Father, we thank you that you have chosen to get the good news of Jesus to us in this room, that we might be made alive by the power of God unto salvation through the Holy Spirit. God, we pray that by that same Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you please move on us this evening, that we would learn, that we would grow, that we would be moved, that we would be encouraged, that we would be built up, that we would be challenged if we need to be challenged, and that we would be uh, torn down, but only to be built back up, we pray. God, please speak to us through your word. We are desiring to hear from you. And it's in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. So uh, the nursery is open. Uh, That is from ages zero to four. Uh, So if you're between those ages and you guys want to go upstairs, uh, the nursery is open and and there's nursery workers in there. And as uh, Jackie reminded us, next week we will have ECC kids and the plan is for that to continue to move forward throughout uh, the rest of the year. That's the plan. All right, so what's going on in Romans? What's going on here is uh, Paul has been wrestling with this question. If the Messiah has come for the Jewish people because he was the promised Messiah, and on a whole, the Jewish people are rejecting the Messiah, has God's word failed? Has his promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, And his covenant, has it failed? Because most Jewish, ethnically Jewish people are rejecting their Messiah. That's the question being wrestled with in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And the answer thus far has been no, no, God forbid. And he's going to take a different, Paul there, is going to take a different route here in Romans 11. He's going to prove that God has not forsaken his people. And so that's uh, where we're going to go. But first, I want to show you that God's choosing of Israel in the Old Testament was holistic, meaning the whole nation, everyone who was Jewish from Abraham uh, was chosen by God, uh, his chosen people. And so this psalm here, Psalm 135, 1 to 4, kind of spells this out. Praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. Or you could translate that, for he is beautiful. And here it is. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. Now, you all who know your redemptive history, you know that Jacob's name was changed to Israel. When Jacob was wrestling with the pre-incarnate Jesus, and so what is your name? And he changes his name from Jacob 
to Israel. And so Israel has 12 children and they become the 12 tribes of Israel, or you could say the 12 tribes of Jacob. And as you can see here, the Lord has chosen Jacob. He has chosen Israel as his own possession. And that's important as we move into Romans 11. And so let's do that together. Romans 11, one to six. I ask then, has God rejected his people, his people being the Jewish people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What Paul argues in verse one is very simple. I ask rhetorically, did God reject his people? So we see the Jewish unbelief of Jesus, we see their rejection. Now the question is, has God rejected them? Has God given up on his people? Answer, by no means. God forbid, some of your translations say. And then his proof is, for I myself am an Israelite. Okay, so here's, here's the simple argument. I am Jewish. Therefore, God has not rejected his people. I am case in point. That's as simple as the argument is. I am a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, I don't know what ethnicity you are. You know, all of us come from probably a mixed ethnicity. Um, I have Irish and German as the prominent ones but I cannot go very far back in my family lineage. I don't know how far you all can go back. Maybe you did one of those ancestry.com things and you can trace your line. But did you know that Jewish people can trace their line to one person? Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans, modern day Iraq. All, all Jewish people can trace their blood back to this one man. And Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons. It's amazing. And so what Paul says here is, I am a descendant of Abraham. And he says, I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, it's interesting that he brings up the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, because some of you know this, uh, the first king of Israel was who? Saul. Saul. And Saul was from what tribe? Benjamin. He was a Benjamite, if you will. Now, let me ask you a question. What was Paul's name before he was? Yeah. Do you think that's an accident? From the tribe of Benjamin named Saul. 
his, his mother and father clearly named him after King Saul. Benjamite. He was the most prominent Benjamite, other than Benjamin himself, probably. And we know God rejected Saul and, and rose, you know, had David come to power. And then David was promised, your, your kingly line will never end. Here's F.F. F. Bruce, who is a uh, Romans scholar. He says, it's not surprising that parents who trace their descendants from the tribe of Benjamin and cherished high ambitions for their newborn son should give him the name born by the most illustrious member of that tribe in Israel's history, Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin. And that's actually quoting Paul there in Acts 13, 21. He says that himself. And so Paul is like, look, I'm Jewish and I'm from that favored tribe of Benjamin. Now, you know, you guys who know your your Jewish history, uh, Benjamin was the last son of Jacob and he was born in Israel territory. And he was of Rachel, the favored and loved wife. And so Benjamin is an important character in the Bible. And he is, if you will, a favored of the tribes. And so Paul is saying, God has not rejected his people. I am Jewish. I am from Abraham. I am from the tribe of Benjamin. And then he goes on to say, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, We've seen foreknowledge in the past. In fact, in Romans 8, verse 29, it was very clear what foreknow meant in that context. And if you can remember back, I know it was a while back, but it was those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And there's this linkage of foreknowing to predestining to calling to justifying to eventually glorification. And foreknow in that context meant that God would choose to have a loving relationship with someone beforehand. Beforehand. It doesn't mean foreknowledge because the text actually says those whom he foreknew. It's directed at individuals. So it's a person whom God foreknows, choose to know ahead of time. And remember, the biblical use of know is often intimate, covenant, reproducing, life-making relationship. Remember, Mary did not know Joseph until after Jesus was born. You remember Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and had a son. And so this is the idea that God chooses to have a loving relationship with his children before they even exist. That's the context of Romans 8, 29 through 30. But here, interestingly, this is a different context. Has God rejected his people No, I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, the two options are one, you could take the foreknowledge from Romans 8, 29 and say it's individuals whom God foreknew. And, And scholarship is divided on this. I lean towards the second option, which is in the past, God foreknew or chose to have a relationship with the Jewish people as a whole, as we just saw in Psalm 
135, one to four just a minute ago. He chooses to have a loving relationship with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, we learned back in Romans 9 that not all Israel is what? Israel, remember? Meaning, not every single person of the chosen people were chosen for salvation, if you can remember that far back. But here, what he's saying is God did not reject his people as a whole, wholesale. God is not throwing Jewish people out as if he's done with them completely. And believe it or not, I'm not a dispensationalist. <laughs> for, you, for you who know what that means. I think God, and Romans 11 is going to, I think, clearly lay this out. God is not done with Jewish people. And I think as verse 25 will say later, there is going to come a time where there will be this mass revival among Jewish people. And the world will take note. It will make CNN and Fox News and Twitter will be blowing up and people will be making uh, TikToks about it. it. It will be serious. It won't be missed. But we're not there yet, are we? How many Jewish people do you know that profess Jesus as Lord and think he was the Messiah? I know a few, but just a few. Just a few. And in, in today... Uh, is the same in Paul's day. There was not many who were true Israel from among the whole of Israel. Amos 3, 1 to 2 kind of shows this. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. You remember how the prophets rolled, right? You have Ezekiel and Amos and Zechariah. They would speak for God to the people. They were God's mouthpiece. In fact, if you remember back to Moses and Aaron, remember Moses is called by God through the burning bush and he's called to go speak to Pharaoh. And he's like, I can't talk. I, I do not have eloquence as a gift. And God says, all right, see your brother over there, Aaron. He's a good speaker. You will be as God to him and he will be your prophet. Meaning Aaron's going to speak for you as if you were God and he was your prophet. And so we often think of Moses with the staff that turned into a snake, you know, pounding it and yelling at Pharaoh. No, Moses didn't say anything. He kind of did the B-boy pose and was like, <laughs> yep, listen to him. That's right. What he said. Exactly. And so he, here's Amos in, in true prophetic fashion. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. Now, often the prophets were not popular people. They were often killed. They were often persecuted. They were often maligned and made fun of. They were not popular. They, they were not, you know, one million hits on YouTube watching their sermons. They were not. Why? Because here, Amos is going to speak against the people. No one wants to hear that. I don't want you to speak against me. What does he say? Oh, people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought out of the land of Egypt. Notice the whole, whole family. You only have I known, there's that word, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. 
What Amos is saying here is not that he only knows about the Jewish people, like he doesn't know about the Egyptians and he doesn't know about the Amalekites and the Amorites and the Midianites. No, he's saying, I have a relationship with you, Israel, only. Man, that's exclusive. That's narrow. That's one way. But that's the way it was. God chose to have a relationship with one ethnicity historically. And you know what? If you wanted to get in on a relationship with Yahweh, you had to enter into the covenant people. You had to become a proselyte. If you were Jewish or if you were not Jewish and you were male, you had to experience some pain. It's called circumcision. And then you had to go through a, a baptismal death where you, your old ethnicity, if you will, dies and you, you become practically Jewish, even though you were Gentile. And it was not like we have it today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and you're in the covenant. It's not how it was. And so here you can see you only, Israel, you only, sons of Jacob, have I known of all the families of the earth. And we sometimes forget this was an ancient family. Abraham had a wife. Her name was Sarah. And they had a child, Isaac. And Isaac had a wife. And then this was a family. And they went to Egypt, I think 75, 74, check me on that number later. And, and they multiplied to millions more than a million, and the exodus with Moses towards the promised land. And so what Amos is saying is, because I have a relationship with you, and because you keep sinning against me and rejecting me, I'm going to punish you, because you're more accountable, because you have my revealed will. I've, I've revealed myself to you personally. I've given you my character as a standard, and I have showered grace upon grace, and you continue to reject me. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And so what he's saying here, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. I believe he's talking about the whole of the Jewish people. Okay. Now, does that mean all the Jewish people are saved in a born-again, forno, predestined, called, justified, glorified sense? No. No. But you could be chosen as a people that God would have his re uh, a relationship with and yet not be in the true Israel. Okay. Just like, friends, we, we've talked about this, not everybody in the church is a genuinely born again, headed to heaven, justified and forgiven person. It's just true. Just like if you were in a bank, that doesn't mean you're a teller or you're a financial advisor. Well, I'm, I'm in the bank. I mean, I, you should listen to my stock options. No. In the same way, just because you come into a church and you sit through worship gatherings means nothing, friends. Now, I would argue, in some sense, it's better than not because you at least hear the word of God. You at least experience the gospel and the power of God is available for you and truth is heralded. So I would say, come in rather than don't. <laughs> but just because someone's here or says they're a part of a church doesn't mean they're the church with a capital C, God's people, Jesus' bride. You with me? And so his argument here is no, no, he has not rejected the whole of Israel. 
Do you not know? Now we're in, in B. 11 to B. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Now, I, I love here that he is going to go 1 Kings 19 on us. Because we often, going through the epistles, we love the New Testament here at Eternal City. We have been in the Old Testament, but we don't get to go there often. Okay? But the Bible is this amazing connected book and the new testament is intricately woven into and with the old testament and you cannot separate the two we don't have a new testament without the old testament and jesus is all up in the old testament in the same way he is clearly revealed in the new testament okay and so what paul's doing is he's going to say look hey you remember elijah he was, by the way, one of the hero, if not the hero prophets. Because you remember the Mount of Transfiguration. Who showed up? Moses, the fulfillment of the law, and Elijah, the capital P prophet, if you will. And here's the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets, Jesus Christ. And so he says, hey, you remember Elijah, how, how he appealed to God against Israel? And now what we're going to see here is, and we are going to run through this text, okay? But I need to remind some of you of the story because not everybody in here is a Bible scholar and not everybody in here went to Sunday school when they were a kid. But I am interested. Who did? Who yeah, me too. Awesome. Right? So we say Elijah and some of us are like, oh yeah, the prophets of Baal and the fire from heaven and... Some people are like, what are you talking about? Okay, and so for us who are very familiar, count yourself very blessed and privileged that you had that when you were a kid because not everybody has that. And not everybody in this room had that. Okay, I did, praise God. I had a lot of kindling there that God threw some gas and a match on. <sighs> praise God. Now for you who are like, well, I didn't have that privilege growing up. Well, listen, you got time. You're alive and you have a Bible. You're okay. You got time. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to do some background and then we're going to go through the whole of 19, one to 18, but I'm not going to exposit it because it's a narrative. And so we're just kind of going to read it as a narrative. And if there's a few confusing things, I'll clarify them. But here's what has happened. Israel has turned against God, Yahweh, the covenant God, and they've gone after Baal or Baal, the same God, just spoke in different ways. Uh, there's a wicked queen named Jezebel. Does that name ring, ring a bell? Jezebel, ring a bell? All right, good. And, and so she has persuaded Ahaz and the whole of Israel to go after Baal or Baal. And Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And there's 400 of them. And he says, all right, let's, let's do a little contest here. You set up an altar to Baal. I'll set up an altar to Yahweh. You go first. And so they begin to call on Baal and he doesn't answer. Then they begin to shout and dance loudly. And if, if you know the story, uh, Elijah begins to mock them. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's in the bathroom. You know, that's what he says. And, and so they begin to cut themselves. They begin to draw their own blood to get Baal's attention, which is remarkable. Now, I, I can't 
help but do this. This is what false gods do, friends. They demand your blood. And we have many false gods, though we wouldn't bow down to an altar and we wouldn't sacrifice on an altar. We, we have false gods that we worship too. But here's what the true God does. Instead of demanding your blood, he gives his. He gets cut for you to be accepted. He gets cut to get your attention. And here these prophets of Baal are cutting themselves, trying to get their God's attention. This is the beauty of Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Yahweh. And so here's what happens. Baal doesn't show up. And so you remember the story, Elijah, all right, build an altar and hey, dig a trench around that thing and then pour a bunch of water on top of it till the whole moat fills up with water. And he prays and not only does fire come down and consume the, the sacrifice, but it consumes the wood, the stone, the water and the dirt. And there's just this smoking hole. And the people watching this Yahweh is the true God. And, and, and Elijah capitalizes it and says, kill the prophets and priests. And they all die by the sword right there. Jezebel gets word of this. She is furious and she sends out a note. You're going to die like them, Elijah. And so he is afraid. He's fearful. He takes off. Here we go. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. (laughs) So she's like, I'm going to kill you the way you killed them tomorrow, four o'clock. And he takes it as a serious threat. Then Jezebel, I'm sorry, uh, verse three, then he was afraid and rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die saying, it is enough now. Oh Lord, take away my life for I am no better than my father's. Now, much work has been done on this verse. I'm sure you've heard it. Uh, What's probably happening to Elijah here is he's exhausted. Like there was real physiological things happening to him during that confrontation. His adrenaline was probably spiked. He was probably on on a super high. And then, you know, if he was involved in the killing, it's not easy to kill people. I don't know from experience, but I've watched enough movies. (laughs) It's not as easy as, it, as you think, you know, did you, have you ever slit yourself with a razor by accident working? I have, there's a lot of blood, but you, you're not going to die. You got you to lose a lot of blood to die, man. And so he is physically spent and done. And that's probably what's happening here. He's afraid, but there's something behind the being afraid because remember, he just saw God do an amazing miracle. And then he just saw God through the people and through him kill 400 prophets. And so clearly something's going on here with his psychology and he just wants to die. God, kill me. I'm done. I've had enough. And friends, I, I, (laughs) I hate to say this. I experientially understand what that feels like. 
I've been there in my life. The year was 2015. It was a super dark time in my life. And I remember having that same feeling like I'm done. I would not be mad if this was it and it was over. Now, I didn't go so far as to ask God to take my life, but I remember thinking death would be better than feeling like this. And I'm curious how many of you have felt that. Yeah, it's real. You're not the only one. And Elijah felt it too. Sometimes there is such a heaviness of existence. A darkness comes over you in such a powerful way that you begin to imagine that not having life would be better than having it. That's real. Okay? And I pray that is not the case for any of you. And if it is, we need to talk. Please, don't, don't go that alone, all right? Please talk with me about that. We have a lot of resources to help you with, all right? But here, this is the place Elijah is. He's in this space. And so he says, it's enough, Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my fathers. And where are his fathers? They're dead, <laughs> That's right. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank. Now there is something significant there. Okay. Back in the day, I used to go to uh, Einstein bagels. It was either Einstein or Bruegel, and they had this thick loaf of a bagel. It was called a power bagel. How many of you remember the power bagels? Man, this thing was like filled with cranberries and all kind of nuts and sunflower seeds. It was fantastic. I liked it. Okay. Put butter on that thing. And it was like eating a Red Bull. You know, you eat this thing and you're like, yeah. And so I imagine that's what this was. It was some kind of power cake. And, and, and he, man, he was revived by this water. Maybe it was Red Bull, you know, proto Red Bull. And, and so he is fired up by whatever he ate. I mean, God delivered it, right? So, so here's God by an angel delivering him some good stuff to eat and drink and watch what happens to him. And he arose, ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb. Man, whatever he ate gave him strength for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, that's crazy. Now, there's significance there that, you know, you guys know typology and 40 years in the wilderness and Jesus fasting for 40 days. It's all connected. But the idea is he was utterly depleted. He did need to sleep. And so he did. And he got up just enough to eat and then passed back out. Now, we don't know how long he slept. Maybe it was days. I mean, I don't know how if you've ever been so exhausted, you just can't go on, but it's good probably to sleep a little bit instead of just pushing yourself. And it's also good to eat if you're in that place because we are physical beings and our physicality is not an evil. Do you know how I know that? Because Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And if anyone, according to first John says, Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh, they are antichrist. And so Jesus, if you will, forever glorified human flesh. Do you know why? Because he's a glorified human being right now, Jewish and male. And so our physicality is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. When God made it at first before sin, what did he say about it? This is good. And then when he looked at all of it, this is very good. 
And guess what? He made us to eat and drink. And if you don't agree with his created order, you're going to die. Okay? And so here, here's Elijah drinking, eating, and sleeping. And he gets power for 40 days. Now we got to move faster. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. Now wait. See, it says Horeb, the Mount of God. Did you know that that's also Mount Sinai where the law was given? So he heads to Mount Sinai where the law was given, the mountain of God, where God came down and gave the Ten Commandments and met Moses in lightning and thick darkness and cloud and thunder and earthquake. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. It was like a hotel. He lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, this is God speaking to Elijah audibly. And he says, what are you doing here? I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of angels, the the God of the armies of heaven. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. So the voice said, go out and stand on the mountain in my presence before the Lord. And behold, The Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. Now, we can imagine that happening, but I don't know if any of you have ever done landscaping with big rocks. Put your hands up if you've done that. Okay. Just yesterday, right? Yeah, exactly. So you guys, this is real fresh for you. Okay. I live on, I live at the bottom of a valley. It's, it's like adjacent to a river and I can go up the hill and there's sandstone on both sides and it often falls off and then it comes down to the road and sometimes they have to get big machines to move the sandstone. Well, to me, I'm like, that is free landscaping rock right there. And so, yes, I have taken it from the side of the road. Absolutely. It's in my backyard. That stuff's free. I'm not paying for that. Right? So this is what I look like with my neat 2017 Nissan Quest with the van open. I'm like, I'm this boulder. I'm like, Oh my gosh. Like, and so I would get, roll it up onto my knees and I'm like, I look like the rock, you know, the rock with veins popping out of my head. Dwayne Johnson look alike. And I get it just onto the seat and I roll that thing on and it rips the fabric of the seat. It's so heavy. It just hits like, this is one little rock like this big. And no, I'm not exaggerating like fishermen do. Like, yeah, the fish was this big. No, it really was a big rock. <laughs> like, man, that was probably a pebble. <laughs> all right, so, so listen what it says, though, all right? You've, you've picked up heavy rocks. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever picked up a five-gallon bucket of water? Man, that junk's heavy. Now, imagine a five-gallon rock. Much heavier. So here, a great and strong wind tore the mountains... And broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. Man, that's strong. So what's God showing here? He is strong. I do this with wind. I can rip mountains apart. 
but the Lord was not in the wind. It was just a product of his presence. And after the wind, an earthquake, similar to Sinai, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Isn't that interesting? That God shows these mighty acts of power in wind, earthquake, and fire, but yet he's not in any of them, but he's in the tiny, still, gentle voice. It's interesting. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. So he like wraps himself up. He's afraid of COVID and just his eyes are sticking out and he comes out and he's like, all right, I'm about to face God. And behold, there came a voice to him. Again, same thing that was said earlier. What are you doing here, Elijah? Soft, still, quiet, calming, non-aggressive, non-accusing, whisper. What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been, and he says the same thing again. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria and Jehu, the son of Nimshi. And you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mohala, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. And so here's what God's going to do. All right, here, I'm, I'm setting up the next crew, Elijah. You're going to anoint these kings and you're going to anoint a prophet and they're going to take care of Ahab and Jezebel and the rest of the prophets. And by the way, you're not alone. I have 7,000 that I have reserved for myself. You see that in verse 18 there? 7,000 in Israel who are my true people who have not killed the prophets and who are true to me. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appears to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, this is probably not just 7,000 men, period, like not 699, I'm sorry, 6,999. What's probably being said here is 7,000 men plus women and children, kind of like the feeding of the 5,000 men plus women and children. And seven is the number of completion. You know this you Bible scholars. So he, he's showing, I have a people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
And so again, what's the question in verse one? Has God rejected his people? No. I am an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. And it was the same way in the Old Testament. The whole of Israel was rejecting Yahweh, yet he saved for himself a people out of the whole. Remember the story with Elijah? There were 7,000 who God reserved for himself out of the whole. True Israelites who were in the nation of Israel. So too, he's connecting it, verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now, I can't say remnant without thinking about carpet. That's just where my mind goes. How many of you ever bought a remnant carpet or like remnant fabric? You've done that, right? So what it means is it's a, it's a piece of the whole that's left over and you get it at a discount. It's like, yes. And you can, perhaps if you're doing a small room or if you want to make rugs or something, you can get this deep discounted carpet because it's left over from the whole. And so in the same way, there is a small amount of the whole whom God has chosen by grace that he will save. And that's what it means here by grace. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So here's the picture now from verse one to five. God has not rejected his people wholesale, whom he foreknew, who he chose to have a relationship with. And out of that wholesale people, he has a few that he has chosen. And that choosing is called grace. And they will be saved. And Paul knows it. And Paul says, I will go after God's elect. I will continue to preach the gospel in the face of opposition. I will continue to go into hostile territory. I will face jail time and I will continue to preach the power of God into salvation because God has a remnant of my ethnicity that he will save like he saved me. And Paul was one of the most violent opposing of Jesus, Jewish people you'd ever meet. And so he's like, man, if he can save me, he can save anybody. And so you remember the book of Acts, Paul would go into the synagogues first in every new city he would enter into. It was his mission strategy, first to the synagogues, and he would preach Jesus from the Old Testament, and often they would reject him, and so he would then go to the Gentiles. That was his strategy. Some Jewish people would believe and we know that because in the letter of Romans and in the letter of Corinthians and in other letters like Galatians, there is a Jewish Gentile tension, isn't there? Wasn't Acts 15 the first council about do the Gentiles need to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised and do the calendar laws and the dietary laws and all that? Don't they need to be proselyte to be saved? And that's what Acts 15 was about. They held the first council to decide these things. And so as Paul would go and evangelize the synagogues and they would reject Jesus, the Messiah. He would then go and preach to the Gentiles and believe it or not, they would receive Jesus, the Messiah all by grace. And then verse six says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Peter. I love Peter. 
Maybe you've not thought about this introduction to First Peter as expounding the doctrine of election, but it is. Look at it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion. Now, what, ha- what happens is Peter is going to write to a persecuted group of Christians. Who are they? They are ones who have been dispersed running from persecution all over the Mediterranean world. Believers who are exiles from their homeland because of persecution. And he says they're elect. Elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Look, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, this foreknowing here, the foreknowledge, is not knowing beforehand, but it's choosing to have a loving relationship with the elect who are dispersed all over the Mediterranean world and Asia. And sanctification here is not so much growth in godliness as it is set apart for God's purposes. Set apart from others. They are separate. They are holy, set apart. And of the Spirit for obedience. So the Spirit is going to produce obedience to Jesus Christ, which is the definition of being a disciple. Jesus said, teach them to obey all I've commanded. And I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Then he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. If it's by grace, then it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, Grace would no longer be grace. Now, I do have a text here in Micah that this will be the last one, okay? Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? And so Micah asks, who is like Yahweh? Who is like God? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for who? For the remnant of his inheritance. That would be the Israel inside of Israel. And that would be New Testament context, Gentiles who believe. We who believe. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. This is who God is. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. If you're a Sunday school kid, you remember the sea of forgetfulness? Anyone remember that? Yeah. God's going to cast your sins into the sea of forgetfulness. Well, here's where that comes from. It's from Micah 7, 18 to 20. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. It's like he takes your rep And he throws it into the sea and it's heavier than water and it sinks to the bottom, never to be brought out again. Isn't that good news? That all your sins that you can remember, God says, I'm going to throw them in the depths of the sea and I'm going to choose not to remember them, though I can remember them. And I can bring them up against you. I'm going to choose to let them sink to the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Okay. Couple quick application points and we're done. Paul 
was asking the question, many Jewish people are rejecting Jesus. Does that mean he has rejected his people? No, he hasn't. Why? Because I am Jewish and I'm believing. And guess what? The whole first believers at Pentecost were Jewish. The whole upper room 120 were Jewish. And then the first church was the church of Jerusalem, primarily comprised of Jewish people. This is by grace. And though there is wholesale rejection, we don't always see what God is doing. No one saw Paul coming. In fact, when they did see him coming, they were like, it's a trap. (laughs) He's playing. He's here to get us. No one believed it at first. And then Ananias had to, had to give him credit. You know, he's the real deal. I prayed for him. I saw these weird things fall off his eyes and and he began to preach Jesus immediately in the synagogues. He's the real deal. Barnabas had to bring him into the church and and Barnabas was his way in. He was his escort, if you will. Here's my encouragement, friends. God's work is often invisible to us. We can't see what he's doing. And oftentimes we are wondering, is he doing anything at all? You there sometimes? I certainly am. God, are you even at work in my life? Are you even at work in the lives of those around me? Are you at work in my church? Are you at work in Pittsburgh at all? Are you at work in the United States? I mean, I'll turn on the news. What, have you abandoned us? Like Paul asked if God has abandoned his people. But friends, the encouragement here from Paul is no, God is working. And it's not often visible to us what he's doing. Strange to us what he's doing. This is the strange providence of God. You should be encouraged that God will work through you. He has promised to. And here's what you need to do. You need to continue to be a witness of his grace on you. Now, there's two ways you could be a witness. You can witness like telling people intentionally about Jesus, sharing the gospel. And God will open doors for you to do that. But you know there's a second way to be a witness? How many of you got called into court and had to testify about what you've seen and heard and experienced? Any of you? And so the idea there is we witness, basically we testify to what has happened to us, to what we've seen, what we've experienced, and what we've heard. And so there is the intentional sharing of the gospel. But friends, you are witnessing of Jesus by your life. And I know that for some of you, you're like, I'm a bad witness. I would agree. We need to change that. And guess what? You have the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian, and he's all about change. God's work is to change you and I. That's what he's about. That's what his will is. He wants you to look like Jesus. He himself said, be holy as I am holy. Okay. Therefore, you can change and be a better witness. And you know what? You should plead to God that he would change you every day. God, change me, work on me, make me into the person you want me to be. Make me look like Jesus. Let me be a better witness in my daily life, in my online presence, with my family, with my kids, with my husband, with my wife, with my neighbors, with my coworkers. God, help me to be a better witness. And God, would you please open up doors for me to share explicitly and clearly the good news? Please open those doors. Give me the words to say when those doors are open and let me strike with grace and truth.
Friends, sometimes God uses us, and this is a sad reality, he uses us to speak the truth that will actually condemn people on the last day. They'll say, I've never heard. And he's going to be like, you remember that conversation you had with Eddie in the break room? You heard. He was my prophet to you. I spoke through him to you, the gospel, and you rejected me by rejecting the message of Eddie. And friends, sometimes that's the case. God is not going to save everybody we share the gospel with. He will use our message to condemn some. And that's his plan and purpose. And I know that's not popular. I know that's not very motivating. But we have to share the good news anyway to whoever we have opportunity to share it with. And we should pray for them that they will believe and that God will save them. When we feel like we're losing and nothing's going the way we want it to, friends, you can still believe that God's at work. He works invisibly. He often works in ways that we cannot perceive, but yet he is working. And so as God was working with the people of Israel, though it wasn't very visible to Elijah, I'm the only one left. No, you're not. I'm doing more than just you, Elijah. In fact, I have 7,000 plus some women and some children who have not bowed the knee and I'm going to bring them to faith. And he was working invisibly, imperceptibly to Elijah. Friends, it's, it's happening with us. These Old Testament stories are here for our benefit. That's something we can take from that. If Elijah couldn't see it and he thought God was only working in him, but yet God was like, no, 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 I'm working. You just can't see what I'm doing. It has to be true for us. And so what is that called? To believe that is called faith. Oh God, increase my faith that you are at work in my life, that you are at work invisibly around me. When suffering is crushing us, which it often does, can you believe that God is still at work? When everything you want to be happening is not and everything you don't want to be happening is, is God still at work? The Bible says he is. He is at work even through the trials, the troubles, and the tribulations. He is at work in you and around you. He's accomplishing his good purposes. We need grace from the Holy Spirit to trust him when we're suffering. But he is working. What about when our efforts bear little fruit? I know some of us have been working for years for God, and we've seen very little fruit. Do you believe he's still working? Or do you believe he's not? He's working in all these other people who are seeing fruit, but you, not so much. Or is he working invisibly in ways you cannot perceive? Friends, I, I, if I tell stories, I go long, but I can't resist this one, right? Last one, I promise. Eddie, are you with me? All right. Brett, are you with me? All right, I got two nods and a thumbs up. All right, so Evan, wake up, bro. All right. I used to do hip hop. Many of you know this. And I used it as an evangelistic tool and I would go out and I would do a couple songs and I would preach Jesus over and over week after week, weekend after weekend, sometimes on weeknights if I had opportunity. I mean, I did that for years and it was almost purely evangelistic and some artistic expression. 
And I did a show. It was in uh, Lawrenceville, I believe. And we had this basement. Um, we, we were able to graffiti it. We had a breakdance battle. We had a, a, a black book graffiti battle. We had, a, we had DJs and we had a bunch of hip hoppers. Hey, and I was tasked, I think Tim Brendel and Shylin were at this one, and I was tasked to give the message. And I'm like, come on, man. So I preached, and I preached on uh, Lazarus, the rich man, uh, from the parable of Jesus. And the story I told was of him wanting a little drop of water on his tongue. And I just remember making the comment, this is probably a parable, but if it's not, he is still there. 2,000 years later. And you know how it is. You give a message. Someone might say, hey, that was encouraging. Thanks. I remember someone said to me like, man, thank God for grace. That was the comment after my message. Just last Saturday, I saw a brother who I haven't seen in probably 15 years. He had all kind of Jesus bracelets on. He's like, hey, man, I was at this hip hop show and you said this. And he recounted that story to me. He's like, I think about it almost every day. He's like, and I think I don't want to go to hell. And I'm going to this church now and I'm trying to walk with Jesus and Francis Chan's my favorite pastor. <laughs> like, yes, finally, some kind of fruit, right? It's like, you, my God, but here's the deal. God was working invisibly to me. And I wonder for all of us, what, what are the stories of your working and you think, is anything happening invisibly? And the answer is, yeah, probably. And our job, our task is to keep working and not give up. And eventually we will bear fruit for our labors. None of it is wasted for God. Did you know that anything you do for God is not wasted? None of it, even a cup of cold water given in his name will not lose its reward. So friends, let's keep working. And I have a bunch more, but, but we don't have time. So here's the last thing I'll say to end this. Friends, our being in Christ is all of grace. You see there at verse six? It's not of works. It's nothing we have done. It's nothing we will do. And it's nothing we can do. God comes after us. He brings us into his family. And we are his by grace and grace alone. Which, surprise, we just sang about it. Not an accident. We're not saved by anything we can do. And I want to offer to you this. Did you know that you're also sanctified or you grow in godliness by grace and grace alone? Did you know that you don't just will yourself into growth? I'm going to grow. I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to stop looking at that. I'm going to stop speaking like this. I'm going to, and it's like you have the power in and of yourself for godliness as if you're going to present your efforts to God and he's going to be like... No, friends, we grow by grace and grace alone. Didn't we sing it? I will slay my sin by grace and grace alone. So friends, here, here's the encouragement. We are saved by grace. We also grow by grace. And so maybe for you, you've been trying to grow in the flesh. Which just means you, by your own strength, by your own efforts, I got this. No, you don't. Grace and grace alone. You need the power of God to grow. Now, mysteriously, God works through our working. 
This is Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and act according to his good pleasure. So you do have to take some action, but did you know that it's not you in your own strength taking action that actually changes you? And so what should you do? You should call out to God for help. You should ask other people to call out to God on your behalf for help that you might change and grow. You have not because you ask not. And so if you want to grow, but you're not praying about it and you've not asked other people to pray about it, God's like, I gave you the book of James. Didn't I tell you in chapter four, you don't have because you didn't ask. And wasn't Elijah a man just like you with a nature like yours? And he prayed and God answered. In other words, you pray, I'll answer. Remember, we're saved by grace. We grow by grace. Amen? All right, so we're going to have the worship team come back up. We're going to sing and we're going to celebrate this grace by taking communion together. Uh, We take communion here at Eternal City every single week because the cross is the center of human history. And so we, by taking communion together as one church, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the cleansing of our sin. And so here's my encouragement, friends. If you're here tonight and you're a Christian, we would encourage you to take communion with us, okay? We would encourage you also, as you're holding that communion element, and you're singing that song with the rest of the church and God's doing business, he's bringing things to mind, you need to not ignore that. If God brings to mind things he wants you to address, friends, don't suppress that. What you're, you want God to move in your life, yet when he moves, you're like, no, and you close the door. That's not wise. And the way God's going to work is he's going to start to convict you of things he wants to change. Don't ignore that. Friends, here's the deal. If you go into that, press into it, go in the room instead of shutting the door and locking it, more doors will open. You'll see more of God's activity in your life. He'll move in more profound ways. But if you continue to stiff arm and resist him, don't be surprised if apathy is what you get. Move with the spirit. Keep in step with the spirit. Don't suppress him. You with me? And so as we're standing and we're singing and you're holding this representation of the broken body and blood of Jesus, if he's speaking to you, please don't ignore it. He wants to do business with you. And that is profound and miraculous that God would want to do something in your life. Isn't it? All right, let's stand. And I'm going to pray real quick and we're going to sing. Father, we thank you for this gift of grace, grace that saves, grace that sustains, grace that changes and transforms us. Father, we give you glory for your glorious grace. Would you please continue to work on us? Father, what would you want to say by your spirit to us tonight? Would you please speak with that still small voice? With that whisper, would you please speak to your children? Let them know that you are working in their lives. You have not forgotten them and that you want to take them to new heights and deeper depths with you. Father, I pray that as we sing, we would sing by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
truths rooted in your word for your glory, for our good, for our joy. In Jesus' name, everyone said?